Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the latest in our series of Spoiler Special Empire Podcasts. This one is dedicated to the latest episode in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ant-Man. And here to discuss Ant-Man with me today are two of our finest insect-loving nutjobs. First up, the Empire writer who was on set of Ant-Man in Atlanta Man. It's Nick Desemlian Man. Hello. Hello. That, that all the above is true. All of the above is true. It's Dan Jolin, everybody. Dan loves ants. Fried, boiled, fricasseed. He doesn't care. Tasty, tasty ants. Actually, um, my best uh, my best recipe is anti-pasto. If you're still with us after that, a quick word to the wise. As always, this is a spoiler special. We'll be discussing all the film's plot twists and third act developments in microscopic detail. So if you haven't seen Ant-Man, get on the back of an ant, fly to your nearest cinema, see Ant-Man, come back here and listen to all the spoilery goodness. Okay, got that? We will wait. That's it. They're back now. It's all good. Uh, Before the three of us get into dissecting Ant-Man... Oh, that sounds wrong. Let's hear from the movie's director. Peyton Reed, uh, of course, replaced Edgar Wright last year when the latter departed close to the start of production, citing creative differences with Marvel. Um, But Reed did a fine job, I think we can all agree. Um, And when he came to London recently... I sat down with him and talked about pretty much everything spoilerific that the movie had to offer. Do enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the director of Batman, Peyton Reed. Hello, sir. How Hello. are you? Hello. I'm doing well. Good, good, good. Now, you, you know, we're going to get into spoiler stuff. Just one question. What's happening at the end? Uh, what's the Vulcan doing? Or why is Bucky got his arm trapped? And what does, what does Cap say about Tony? <laughs> Apart from that, I mean, that's that's not a scene you directed. That's... Um, that's a bona fide scene from Civil War, isn't it? That's something we're going to... The last tag scene. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting because we knew we wanted to have a couple of tags on this movie. Yeah. The first one with Hank and Hope, where we reveal the Wasp uh, costume, mm. that was something we shot during production and was always an inherent part of the movie because it really is sort of the completion of Hope's arc in, in that movie. Sure. The second one, we actually cut some uh, some tags to go on the end that had nothing to do with what you see in the current movie we we were going to do just complete comedic non sequitur tags you know there were a couple of things that we edited together uh with uh with michael pena and paul but when we really got to the end of the movie and we you know we end the main body of the movie with uh, with michael pena we felt like we didn't we couldn't top that that was that was really fun so then when captain america civil war daily started coming in there was this scene, and it was really just the raw dailies. And Kevin saw the dailies. He's like, come and take a look at this. And, and I watched the dailies, and I'd seen some other stuff because I, I really wanted to see Paul in that movie to increase my, uh, my envy, uh, my level of envy. <laughs> um, but the uh, – so it was interesting because we definitely set in motion in this movie a relationship with, with Sam, with Falcon, mm. and, and – he has a run-in with him in our movie, obviously, and then by the end of the movie, uh, it becomes clear that he's looking for Scott. Uh, we're not sure why or what's going to happen, but it's a very, you know, it, it ends our movie. So this thing sort of took it to another level, and suddenly you see, you know, Sam and Cap, and they're there with Bucky and mm. his arms in a vice, what's going on, and something is going on, and it's suggested maybe we should call Tony, no, 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 that won't work, and... And Mackie turns around and says, uh, I know a guy. And then, boom, it cuts to black and Ant-Man will return. Yeah. In true James Bond fashion comes up. Yeah. So it seemed like the completion of that that arc and that relationship in our movie, but it it also sort of starts your head spinning about, wait, it's, well, what is, what's in store for Scott in this movie? And, <laughs> and uh, that was something that, you know, again, the Russo shot for Civil War. 
and we sort of repurposed it for our movie. Okay. There is a line that Cap says. He says, and I've seen it twice, and I couldn't quite make it out. He says, uh, we can't call Tony because, A, he won't believe us. And even if he did, the accord, the accords the won't accords. let him. The accords. Okay. Yeah. So that's presumably some superhero registration thing. Okay. Yes. That's what he says. That's yes, good. You, yeah. That's, that's good that's to right. clear that and up. And one of the things I also love about that tag, <clears throat> you know, because our movie is 185 and, and, uh, yeah. and, and Civil Wars and, and 240. And I like that. It's one of the things I love about the Marvel movies is like Anthony Mackie, Clearly established in uh, in Winter Soldier, pretty serious minded movie, and then he shows up in our movie doing light comedy with <laughs> Paul Rudd playing the same character, and then at the end in the tag, now we're back into the Russos yeah. uh, Civil War world, and it's I love that the those characters can cross pollinate like that and enter not only different movies but different tones. Yes, I have to ask a little bit about the genesis of the movie. I mean, that's been poured over an awful lot. Sure. Um, I, I believe there was a previous director on this film at one point. I'd heard um, that, yeah. I had heard that as well. Just in a rough percentage-wise, how much of Edgar and Joe's draft remains in this film? Because obviously they have, they have a credit sure. at the end. Well, I'm not being evasive, but it becomes really hard to determine after a while because, you know, working on the script was such an ongoing endeavor. And we were constantly rewriting and refining as I was prepping the movie, as we were shooting the movie, and then even some in, in editing, you know, we were changing some stuff and did, I believe it was three days of additional photography. As I said, when I came on, uh, Adam McKay and Paul Rudd had already been tasked with starting yeah. the rewrites. Percentage-wise, I, I, again, it's really hard to tell. I mean, the general heist structure of what Edgar and Joe created remains intact in our movie. Um, as does the basic idea of Hank Pym being the mentor and Scott Lang being the pupil. And also this, the, the third act, which, you know, uh, moves toward this giant superhero battle that takes place in a little girl's bedroom sure. and, and on a train set, that remains pretty intact from Joe and Edgar's script. I mean, there, there are definite things that we changed. Obviously, we introduced the quantum realm, yeah. which in the comics is the microverse. That was never in the original drafts. Adam, Adam really, along with Paul, brought a lot of stuff, structural stuff. Yeah. Obviously, the run-in with the Falcon was never in the original drafts. Yeah, yeah. And the things that we did, you know, it was very important to me that this movie work as a standalone movie. Sure. Obviously, it fits into the larger universe, but I wanted it to work for someone who'd never seen any other Marvel movie or read a comic at all, that it had a beginning, middle, and an end. So the things that we added also, um, they definitely have... You know, it wasn't just like, oh, let's show the, him fighting the Falcon. It serves a plot purpose and, mm. and it's very much in line with their whole original heist structure. Mm. It's basically the trial by fire. It's like, okay, we've got the heist going and, and we've got all the elements, but there's this one thing we need. It's a piece of technology, a signal decoy that Hank had designed in his shield days. And, and, and Scott, I'm going to send you in there to get it. We know you're not ready, but it's a trial by fire. And sure, of course, sure. So that stuff, the tip montages with Michael Pena were something that we added. And that actually came post-Adam McKay. That was when Paul and I were working with uh, Andrew Bearer and uh, Gabe Ferrari, who were our production writers, Okay. Um, who aren't credited on the movie. Um, that's all, you know, Writers Guild stuff. But they did a lot of work on the movie. And I wanted to add these tip montages because Pena was proving to be so great in the movie. And... That is one of those tropes in a heist movie where it's like, okay, if the guy decides, uh, I'm in, yeah, but yeah. i got to know that tip is solid. And the idea of, of, of Luis going off on these tangents and basically being ADD and, and telling these rambling stories and then us being able to visualize them, yeah. which we do a couple of times in the movie. And That's great. I love that. So that, that was yeah. something we added. Weirdly enough, I think that most people will look at that and think that was a holdover from Edgar and Joe. Yeah. It feels very... Yeah, you may be right. I mean, you know, it really was my 
wanting this movie to be as kinetic as possible yeah. and really move and feel uh, and have the rhythms of, of a heist movie. It's similar to a lot of stuff transition-wise that I'd done in Bring It On and Down With Love and, and even actually <clears throat> weirdly in the TV movie stuff I'd done in the, in the 90s. The, I directed a couple of Disney TV movies in like 1995 and 96 and yeah. they were very kinetic yeah. because, you know, it was, they were essentially kids movies, but they moved really, you know, kinetically like that. But you're probably right. That may, that may be the case. <laughs> it's just, it's just one of those, it's, it's one of those weird things. People might assume certain things about yeah. certain sequences and whatnot, but uh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think there's a certain population uh, of people who will, uh, for the rest of movie history, parse out what was this, what was that. And, and at the end of the day, it's interesting to me because it's probably a small percentage of people who do that. And I'm kind of one of them. I can't plead, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm guilty of it as well on other movies. But at the same time, I just want the movie to stand on its own. Sure. I mean, there are plenty of movies in history, like, you know, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, Spartacus, where there were, you know, director switches. Yeah, yeah. The general population just wants to like the movie. 99.8% couldn't tell you who did what. But at some point, I could probably go into exactly what was changed and how. And mm. and as I said, you know, when McKay came on, one of the first things we did was we sat with a friend of his who's a security expert, a genius guy. And, and we wanted to, um, it was always in the in the script that, Scott Lang was going to steal the suit from Hank Pym, but we wanted to come at it in a different way. And we added the whole uh, fingerprint lock and how he sort of MacGyvers his way through Hank's kitchen and and gets his way around that. And then also in terms of breaking into the safe, the science of freezing the metal and stuff, that was all this guy who, who McKay brought in and there was just enough reality and science in it that it, (laughs) that it worked. But we really wanted to build Scott as a guy who was resourceful and could, uh, you know, he, he had a lot of, uh, experience as a cat burglar he is a cat burglar but he also seems to have done just one the one major score that altruistic uh robin hood-esque robbery but right. there's there's little hints i don't know whether you know, that, that he has done other things as well yeah but and he, our, the, the sort of backstory that we had talked about was that he had he had been a pretty successful cat burglar then sort of fell in love yeah. and uh put that behind him and 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 really got a respectable steady job at sure. vista corp yeah. Uh, and had a kid, and and then when he saw what was going on behind the scenes at VistaCorp, he sort of uh, decided to put his uh, cat burglar skills mm-hmm. uh, to use to to right this wrong. But then, by his own admission in the movie, he got carried away and went too far. And so, <laughs> yes, there's this whole sort of life of crime that he had before that particular sure. job. And then all leads to Baskin Robbins, and Baskin Robbins always finds out. Was that uh, we know that as a fact? That's yes. an amazing line. Don't um, screw with Baskin Robbins <laughs> and Turkington as well. I love that uh, that whole cameo. It's uh, it's amazing. Well, Greg Turkington again is someone that we uh, have always been fans of. Whether it's his his uh, Neil Hamburger alter ego or on cinema at the cinema, which is uh, is uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's you know it's an online series that's in season five or six now. Yeah, and it's Tim Heidecker and Greg, and and it's genius the way they're sort of like these supposed experts who know nothing and review movies but it's really the sort of ongoing serialized story of their personal lives that's so brilliant yeah but turkington was someone who i was excited about you know having in the movie and kevin feige and the guys at marvel are real comedy connoisseurs and so you know a lot of times you'll have to go to a studio and say i want this guy greg turkington is like well who's he what i don't know we got to see other people 
Kevin just got it immediately. Like, I love on cinema. Let's get him. And that was it. And he was in the movie. Heidegger is pissed. Heidegger is. Oh, <laughs> of furious. course, you know. But I give uh, give Greg's cameo if, five bu- five buckets of popcorn. Five, five, bu- five buckets of popcorn. Never buy my bags. If you get a chance to watch the uh, on cinema Oscar special from yeah. last year, oh, yeah. uh, I showed up on the Oscar special as Peyton Reed, the director of Ant Man. Uh, <laughs> And Tim was very cocky about his directorial work on Decker, his other TV series, and we kind of got into it. It was uh, <laughs> fun to watch. It's all good. I'm going to throw uh, some some quick things now for you to uh, to clear up. I mean, we talked a bit about the Falcon the Falcon scene, which I love because it feels like it's something out of a comic book. You'd be reading it, say, in that man comic book. Then the Falcon turns up. They fight for ten pages. Then he goes away into his own <laughs> into his own title. Yeah, I love that stuff. Why the Falcon? Was that? Do you did you have a, a list of the new Avengers you could have chosen? And did you choose Mackie? And, and and how did that come about? I have to I have to give Adam McKay credit for that. Adam came in and pitched the idea of the scene, and then when it was talked about, well, who could it be? He's like, I, the Falcon, man. It's got to be the Falcon. And <laughs> it had to be the Falcon in a way. It, it was the right level of character because I think it was too soon to put him up against Iron Man or Captain America or whatever. Mackie just seemed like you know. He's so great in Winter Soldier, and I just wanted to see more of him. And it just it, it seemed to work. Mm. Um, and also because of his powers, there seemed to be it, it, it awakened this childlike thing that we all had when you're reading comics. Oh, this hero has these powers. This one has the other powers. What would happen if they fought? What it, he'll shrink, he'll fly around, but Falcon has the wings. He can. It just seemed like it could work, and it yeah. made sense in the story too. Yeah. Did he yell? Cut the check. After his first big hero entrance. Well, it's it's not a matter of did he yell cut the check. It was how many times after every like Mackie has this beautiful style of like you'll do a thing and I'll yell cut. It's like cut the check, and then it's like you don't need it anymore. That's it. I mean, he's just amazing. I love Mackie. Fantastic. Uh, when he when he first arrives, uh, when Sam first arrives, he's talking to someone. I couldn't quite place the voice. Who's he talking to? He's basically talking to someone back at the Avengers headquarters, okay. just in terms of their just security some, detail. There was guy. much discussion about who he was going to be talking to, uh, and we played around with a lot of other ideas, but it felt mm. like anybody else. There was talk of, oh, is it, is it Scarlet? Who mm-hmm. is it? And, 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 and then it just, anything else would have sort of run away with the movie. Absolutely. You'd like, be going, why aren't they fighting as well? Yeah. Why aren't they coming out to... Uh... You don't want to lead the audience down a path that like, oh my God, now the vision's going to show up and this is going to happen and whatever. It's, sure. It had to remain Ant-Man. Moving on to uh, the idea of of Hank and Darren and that idea of mentors and mentees, if you will. Uh, there's a really interesting line, uh, two interesting lines, actually. Hank talks about having you know, worn a suit for years, has taken its toll on him. And then there's a line that Hope has towards the end where she says that Darren, uh, his exposure to the, part, the pin particles has effectively eroded his right. mind. Does that mean that Darren's been experimenting on himself or have the particles leaked? And is that built into what Hank talks about, he, that he can't really don the suit more, one more time? Yeah, I mean, we talked about the idea that we liked. There were various versions of this in the comic book that were, they put timetables, these finite qualities on maybe how long, in the comics, how long Hank could shrink or uh, when he became Giant Man in the comics, how long he could stay large. And we liked the idea of putting some limitations on it. Particularly with Hank, we liked the idea of, you know, the movie has a question there of Hank has a problem and there's a question that could be there potentially with the audience is why don't you just put the suit on and take care of it. Mm. And we wanted to build in something that really, besides being, you know, uh, up there in age, why he wasn't able to do it. And we really liked this idea of the suit had taken its toll on him and that shrinking and growing a certain number of times uh, that, that comes with a cost. 
there might be a finite level. Mm. We don't define what, how far that could be. And he also talks about that part of the function of the Ant-Man helmet is, is to protect you from exposure to the particles. Uh, in terms of Darren Cross, when we see him experimenting with the cross particle, you know, the second time he attempts to, to shrink this lamb, he's down there on the floor completely unprotected and just, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it takes, his, his ego is taken over. And, and that's really sort of what it is. And we also established that he might not have been altogether there to begin <laughs> with. <laughs> That is a very, very good point indeed. And the Hank, the Hank and uh, Janet storyline is really interesting as well. And we actually get to see uh, a version of Janet as a wasp in yes. like, '87. Was that uh, how late in the day was that? Was that something that was was? Well, there? that was something that was really important to me. Again, I think in in Edgar and Joe's original drafts, there might be one mention of Janet, but she was never a presence in the movie. Okay. And more than that, and and I really, as someone who grew up with Janet Van Dyne and Hank Pym, I. I, I wanted her to be a presence in the movie. I wasn't sure how that was going to happen, but there was something McKay and Paul and I talked about and, and, and the idea of sort of presenting this flashback, but really weaving it into the story in or, an organic way that that might have been at the root of this rift between mm. Hope and Hank. Yes. That was something that we brought to the movie, and I feel like it works really well. I wanted to strengthen the emotionality of the movie. Yeah. In addition to being to, to providing all the the action and and the comedic stuff, I really like to be emotionally affected in a movie, mm. and I felt like we had a really legitimate opportunity because at the core of this movie, it's you know about two fathers and their daughters, and and both of these men having these strained relationships. Mm. In Scott's case, he's been in prison; he just wants to be back in her life. But in Hank's case, when his wife passed away, he really did sort of hole up and became obsessed with the quantum realm and trying to bring her back at the expense of his relationship with his daughter. He really pushed her out of his life. Mm. And it's crucial and it's imperative for them to repair that relationship in order to pull off the heist. But the Janet thing really informs Hank's character and Hope's character equally. Their life is is affected by this tragedy and and Pym sort of made it worse. Mm. And was there ever talk about um, not showing the flashback? 87 was that something that you discussed as well i mean it, it, it's yeah. great that we see it we talked about a lot of different versions of it like yeah. what was the best and most effective way to make her a presence in the movie mm. i know that mckay wrote at least two different versions of whatever mission it was that they were going to be on and we eventually landed on on the missile it had to be simple and effective but it also had to be a little bit impressionistic because it wasn't like we were switching to an action sequence it's all through Pym's remembrance of it and yes. all informed, you know, his delivery during that is it's very soft and, and emotional and it's a big turning point for his character in that mm. relationship. But we talked about yeah, a lot of different versions of, of how to do it. Mm. Do we open the movie with her? Mm. How much is enough and how much is not enough? But we, we um, it just becomes, you know, a crucial element of the story, particularly by the time we get to the end and Scott survived the quantum realm. And yes. it, you see the, f- the first scene after in, in Pym's bedroom, Pim leaning in, you don't remember anything? Tell yeah. me, tell me. Like, this is a miracle that Scott's survived the quantum realm. And, and it's it, it, there's a potential that it's going to reignite this obsession of Pim's. And mm. remains to be seen, again, if we're fortunate enough to be able to do another Ant-Man movie, you know, is, the, is that obsession a good thing, a bad thing? What's it going to lead to? But 
you know, that's that's exciting to think about. Absolutely. Uh, in the credits, uh, Haley Lovett plays Janet. Yes. In that one flashback. Yes. But you've uh, deliberately, when you see pictures of Janet with Hank, uh, young Hank, you keep the face obscured. Is that to keep your options open just in case <laughs> one day? <clears throat> it's two things, really. You know, Haley came in and did um, the uh, the motion capture stuff, and, and we shot both Michael and Haley in front of this array, which is essentially five cameras positioned in front of them. They sit in a chair with dots on their face, and it's pure acting. It's mm. just, you know, facial acting. And so Michael did all his stuff, and, and Haley did... Janet's. And I think the idea was, yes, to keep our options open, but also to keep that impressionistic thing of, uh, we knew in its best version, it would be a very iconic image to see her fly and see the wings. And Mm. for those Marvel Comics fans, that it might actually be exhilarating. Mm. But we didn't want to get too into, you know, there were versions where there was dialogue between the two of them. And it just felt like it made it a little too present tense. It had to still be a little distanced and impressionistic. I love the uh, the idea of the quantum uh, quantum realm and uh, the, the going subatomic. You, in a way, you do what Ghostbusters doesn't do. Ghostbusters sets up the idea of crossing the streams, and then when they cross the streams, nothing happens. But in this case, you set up the subatomic. <coughs> Don't go subatomic. Bad things will happen, and bad things do happen. It's funny you mention that because we actually talked about Ghostbusters and crossing the streams, and we also talked about Back to the Future and uh, potentially creating a paradox and yeah. you know that that sort of internal logic of the quantum realm. That was something that I really. McKay and I were in sync about of it's gonna be a lot of shrinking in the movie what if we got to a third act and took it even further it was something we loved in the comics and it embraced that psychedelic cosmic side of the Marvel Universe you know and and maybe even sort of gives a hint of what's in store of phase three for Marvel yeah. you know with Doctor Strange yeah. but it, it was something also that tapped into this Richard Matheson thing you know Richard Matheson who wrote yeah. uh, Incredible Shrinking Man both the book and the movie he also wrote this Twilight Zone episode Little Girl Lost which really imprinted on me as a kid and the basic idea that there's a, there's a little girl and her bed is right next to a wall and she falls into the wall a portal opens to another dimension and the father they have to figure out how to get her out and they my memories they put pennies on the wall because the wall's closing up and he has to figure out and it freaked me out as a kid because <laughs> i had a bed against a wall and then i became paranoid that i was going to enter another dimension i never did in our movie this is sort of the inverse where yes. the father is put in there and I just love the whole existential thing of it. You know, oh, yeah. we go through these different levels and in, in prep, we actually met with this quantum physicist and we're asking him all these questions like he'd been to the quantum realm, <laughs> but about <laughs> like what in, in theory, what would it be like? Could your mind even comprehend it? Yeah. And we got into whole the notions of parallel universes and, you know, infinite, you know, infinite possibilities, infinite present tense possibilities. And, um, it all led to this notion of, uh, you know, the different levels mm. of his journey. We knew we wanted to, to end with what we were calling the void, where it's darkness and there's nothing around the corner and uh, he may be stuck there for all eternity. <laughs> Which would have been an interesting way to end it. <laughs> just end it. <laughs> I can yeah, imagine. It, it, it just, yeah, yeah, the sound goes out, he's floating. Hold on that for five, six minutes. <laughs> And then just go to credits. Well, it does go full 2001 towards the end. I mean, oh, yeah. It's properly trippy at the end. We wanted it to be, you know... We wanted it to to feel like 2001 or Altered States or something like mm-hmm. that, where it's this trippy, you know, trip that we take the audience on and that Scott experiences. And it's amazing if you get to experience it in Dolby Atmos. I mean, yeah. ILM did amazing work with the visuals. I love it. But the sound work that Skywalker yeah. did is it, oh, it's yeah, terrific. Oh, yeah, with uh, Cassie's voice echoing Cassie's through the... Cassie's voice oh, yeah. and Pim's voice floating around yeah. and all the different the sounds and... 
I uh, I, I I thought when when I first saw the film, I thought, aha, I think we might be may be uh, about to meet Doctor Stephen Strange at this point. Were there discussions at any point about maybe doing that? We had discussions, and a lot of those discussions ended with, let's not bite off too much in this movie. Okay. I mean, it it really was introducing the quantum realm alone was a great whole other tone and texture for the end of the movie. And it really existed as a story point in our movie. You know, there there is something that can be glimpsed if you have a keen eye in, in the quantum realm sequence that Scott doesn't see, but it's there for the audience to see. Uh, if you want to go see the movie again and <laughs> keep your eyes peeled, uh, particularly when you buy the DVD and Blu-ray and have the capability of freeze framing. Okay. Interesting. There uh, is definitely something in there for you to see. Rough time code? Mm. <laughs> I'd love to give you an exact uh, uh, frame. An exact uh, but frame. But uh, it can be seen in a Scott point of view, and it can also mm-hmm. be seen uh, in a shot right after that reflected in the lenses of his Ant-Man helmet. Okay, right. Well, I'm going back now. You just you've sold another ticket. That's good. I want to talk about two maybe deaths in the film, one of which is... The most affecting screen death of the year, Anthony. Why, he's, thank you. He's he's gone. Is Anthony? A lot of people in the office are very concerned about Anthony. Is he dead? I, we we said he's an ant. Let's have a frank discussion about Anthony. <laughs> um, one of the things that was a, a, a real challenge in the movie is creating all these ant characters, making them as realistic as possible, but also giving them these personalities. Yeah. We had to find that line because it couldn't turn into a Pixar movie in the middle of this movie. Yeah. I love Pixar movies, but that's not what we're doing here. And then it occurred to us, like, we like the idea that Scott Lang would have a different approach to being Ant-Man than Pym. Pym just numbers these ants, right? It's it's still science for him. But Scott forges this relationship, sort of a Lone Ranger trigger relationship or a a Roy Rogers and... (laughs) Wait, Roy Rogers has trigger. Lone Ranger has silver. (laughs) Let's not get those mixed up. (laughs) Um, But we like that idea that, could we do that? Could we convincingly forge this relationship and then have... Anthony meet with a tragedy yes. and try and get some actual emotion from the audience. We love that idea. And I'm, I'm here to report that, yes, uh, Anthony does literally bite the bullet. Oh. But the bright side is that the, the I, I believe, you check your science books, but I believe the average lifespan of a carpenter ant is 8 to 10 weeks. In a cold climate, maybe, climate, maybe 12 weeks. <laughs> and I like to think that Anthony was close to his termination yeah. date anyway. And I can't think of a, a more fulfilled life for a carpenter ant than the one that Anthony led. So he died there doing what he that. loved. Exactly. And that's the main thing. Yeah. That's the main thing. And the other kind of death I wanted to talk about was Hank's. Because there was, there was a semblance of, of, a, of, a, of a thought watching it that maybe he died at one point and you decided to go in a different direction after he gets shot by, by Cross. Was, hmm. there, was that ever something that you, you discussed? Definitely while I was on the movie, we, well, we talked about it, but only briefly. Um, it didn't make sense. It, it, it was only going to work if it propelled our movie in, in a way mm-hmm. emotionally. And I didn't feel that it did. Sure. I liked the risk of him potentially uh, uh, dying, but I did not want to kill off Hank Pym. <laughs> he didn't Hank want to be that guy. Enough. I mean, <laughs> Hank Pym was, you know, let's face it. Hank Pym was denied the right to be one of the founding members of the Avengers in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, sure. which he was in the comics. Yeah. He finally gets his chance to, to make his screen appearance, and we have fun retroactively placing him in the history of, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. and with Howard Stark. It did not seem fair to kill off Hank Pym <laughs> in the movie. Um, I, I feel like there's still a lot of story to tell. Absolutely. 
but yeah, we I, I suppose we could have done a, a an Obi Wan Kenobi and killed him off and have him <laughs> back as an ant ghost. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> be interesting. Um, can you talk about the the decision to start the movie where you did in 1989 with that flashback with freaky young Michael Douglas? What the hell is going on there? That looks amazing. He looks younger than Haley Atwell, which is <laughs> which is yeah. exactly what you're going for. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, we figured out in the timeline that Pym in 89 would be roughly 45, 46, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. and that Peggy would be about 65. And that was one of the trickiest things for me because that effect terrified me. We've seen versions in the movie where they make actors seem younger and uh, sometimes they don't work or they they're, you, you get into an uncanny valley situation where it's just like, oh, this is weird. Mm. But Lola, the company that did it, you know, had done the Skinny Steve stuff for Cap- yeah. the first Captain America, yeah. um, which I thought was hugely successful. But it scared the shit out of me because this was the opening scene of the movie. And if the effect didn't work, it potentially could turn off viewers early in the movie and, and yeah, they yeah. could check out. But we did, what we would do is we shot the scene with Michael Douglas with tracking dots on his face. And when I got a take that I loved, we had this younger guy, uh, a, a guy named Dax, and he was a young guy that we cast, I believe, out of Georgia, who looked a lot like Michael Douglas of that era. He watched Fatal Attraction, Wall Street, uh, Black Rain, all these old Michael Douglas movies and really got his body language down really well. So I would shoot another take with him. Then we put Michael in a 3D scanner that Lola had and scanned his face. We Mm -hmm. gave all those materials to Lola and they came back with this. And I... I'm so pleased with the final effect, yeah. but it made me so nervous. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. And that was, that was always the opening, you know, always the idea to open in 89 with Pine We had a lot of shield. ideas. You know, in, in, uh, in the original drafts, there was a, a standalone sequence. <clears throat> I think in Edgar and Joe's original drafts, it was Cuba in 62. Oh, okay. Uh, and the timeline didn't quite work for us anymore. But then it became Panama in 1989, that sequence. We shot that sequence. Oh, really? And okay. the sequence uh, is terrific. But the more we got into editorial, that sequence just, it, it, it felt disconnected. It gave us something. It gave us Hank Pym in action as Ant-Man, but it didn't give us any real connectivity to present day. So then when uh, McKay and, and Rudd and we were working on that S.H.I.E.L.D. sequence, that seemed to do it in the most succinct fashion. Mm-hmm. Let's see the moment mm-hmm. where he realizes he's been betrayed by, by S.H.I.E.L.D. and possibly by his old friend, Howard Stark. Let's see that moment that he decides I'm locking this formula up and no one's ever going to get it. Absolutely. And uh, I know we've got to run here, but uh, I just want to throw three very, very quick fire questions at sure. you very, very quickly. Uh, there's a lot of cool Easter eggs in the movie. Milgram Hotel. Uh, yes. Tales to Astonish is actually openly referenced. There's a Spider-Man reference towards the end. Of the there is. Act. Yes. Um, is, that, is that character that the, the lady says we've won? One who jumps, one who swings, one who crawls up walls. Are there three different characters or are they all references to Spider-Man? That remains to be seen. It, it, it might actually be some different characters. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, the tank. The yes. Hank key ring. Do you have yeah. a backstory for how he got how, how it got there? That actually was one of the things in the original Cuba that became Panama. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the moment where he shrinks down that tank. Wow. Okay. And it was one of the things too. It felt like too much of a giveaway. Sure. Because we saw it happen originally in that prologue, whereas now we just sort of see it's a key chain and oh yeah. he must have had some military pass or whatever and and hopefully it there's a surprise <laughs> element to it. I feel sorry for the poor guys who are stuck inside that tank. <laughs> They've been there for the last 30, 40 years. Hey, these tiny guys, yeah. <laughs> the tiny guys. They have to be uh, fed and watered. <laughs> the Cure song, was that always the, uh, the option to, to go for that one? No, and in fact, uh, that sort of came about from, there was always the briefcase fight, and we were looking for an iPhone joke. 
Okay. He was going to hit it, and, and there were all these jokes pitched, some of them funny, but it was basically, you know, something like, uh, you're going to wind up dead, searching for the closest Panera bread, you know, something like that, <laughs> which they were, they were funny jokes, but they were just jokes. And then we landed on the idea of what, what if they activate the music, you know, mm. the, the iPod portion of it. I was, was and still am a huge Cure fan. <laughs> and, and so we came up with that the line about, you know, I'm going to disintegrate you playing Disintegration by The Cure. Amazing. The opening track, Plain Song, is this epic Cure song. And when we put it against the picture, it's a fight taking place in a dark briefcase and there, you know, there's zero G stuff going on. And suddenly there's this anthemic goth music playing. And it just lent this whole other tone to that scene that was sublime to me. I loved it. And it comes, you know, there's the helicopter fight, the briefcase, the backyard barbecue, Mm -hmm. and then we go to the bedroom. And it was important that each of those sequences have their own different distinct tones, and mm. that really elevated that thing. I, I That's one of my favorite moments in the movie. And the absolute last thing before I'm dragged out of here sure. is uh, you choose not to shoot when Scott's in the Ant-Man suit. You choose not to shoot a sort of heads-up display or, or any close-ups right. of Paul within the within the mask uh, or within the helmet. Was that to avoid direct comparisons with, say, Tony Stark and Iron Man? Or can you it's, just... I, I like that you pointed that out. It was something that we discussed a lot because in Iron Man, you know, you go inside, you see Downey's full face and all the, the computer readouts. With Ant-Man, we would there, there were a couple of scenes that we shot Paul with the full helmet on, but we ended up shooting him with a helmet that covered his head but not his face because we wanted to see his eyes. Rudd has such beautiful eyes, but <laughs> expressive eyes. And, you know, we needed enough of that, so we would shoot it, and then we really adjusted sort of the level of red yes. in the CG portion of the frontal yes. mask because we wanted to get that emotionality out of him. And it was important that when Ant-Man is small running around, that he not feel disconnected from Paul Rudd. Mm. Um, we've all seen movies where costume heroes, oh, I love the actor, and then they put on the costume and, it's a stunt guy. It's a stunt guy, or yeah. it doesn't move or sound or look like the character. So finding that right level for the eyes and the expressiveness was something we worked on a lot. Fantastic. Uh, Peyton, could talk to you all day about this one. But, Let's uh, keep going. I've got, to, I've got to let someone else in. Someone else has <laughs> got to have a go. Uh, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you very thank much. You. It was a pleasure. That's great. What a lovely man. And uh, huge Ant-Man fan, as we, as I, I don't know if anyone knows Sorry, did that. you say Hugh Jackman fan? That's what I thought you said. Huge Ant-Man fan. Oh, okay. It, it may seem weird that I'm going to discuss Ant-Man on yeah. the Ant-Man podcast. Yeah, I, I, know, I, just so I don't know well. why. Yeah, I think yeah. being random. Well, we're all huge Jackman fans, aren't we? I am. Show me someone who doesn't like Hugh Jackman, and I will show you... Do Grey Scott. There we go. <laughs> Okay. I just spilled water over the microphone. Thank you for that. I, I even Dugray Scott must like Hugh Jackman. Even Dugray Scott in his heart of hearts must be going. I he flings twenty five darts into a picture of Hugh Jackman every morning and then says, "You well, know what? I got to admit, he's a great guy." Should we talk about the film? Yeah, rather than Dugray Scott, no, Hugh, Hugh Jackman. Okay. Uh, where should we start? Where should we start? With uh, Ant Man and all things Antry and Manny. Indeed. Can I, well, can I start at the beginning? Yeah, are you okay. That's a weird place to start. Uh, thought, Tarantino would never start the there, but okay, go on. I, I was, um, you know, um, I, I reviewed Terminator Genesis. I'm not being random. And I was so impressed at the de-aging of Arnie scene in that, right? Mm-hmm. I was really impressed by that. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, like, I saw Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. And it's like Michael Douglas has just walked in from Basic Instinct. I actually said it makes the, uh, the, the de-aging in Ant-Man makes the de-aging in Terminator Genesis look like the de-aging in Terminator Salvation. <laughs> Because it is much, yeah. it is yeah. incredible. No, you're actually right. 
I mean, that's um, a weird way of saying it, but it's right. Thank you. That's yeah. just how I talk. Yeah. But yeah, it's, so the, the, the flashback <laughs> is 1989, which is actually the year Michael Douglas made Black Rain and The War of the Roses. I looked it up. Okay. I didn't know that because I'm yeah. not a weird and Michael if, Douglas stalker. Yeah. In fact, he has his War of the Roses haircut in um, the opening scene okay. of Ant-Man. That must be what they based it on. Black Rain was, you know... A longer hair because he played Nick Rain in that. Didn't he? I think no, no, he didn't. Of course, he didn't. Um, but yeah, it's a preposterous film, Black Rain. Have you I ever, love it. Ever, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Great decapitation scene. <laughs> Great decapitation. Very scene. racist and <laughs> not as not as racist as Rising Sun. Mm, that's true. That's true. Which is astonishingly hilariously racist. Mm. But yeah. Anyway, we've we've gone off on a detour. Yeah, but anyway, my point is, uh, it's, it's just like. The look of Michael Douglas in that scene is is absolutely astonishing, and yeah. I, but also I love the fact that he's mixed in with Hayley Atwell, mm-hmm. who looks you know twenty years older than him. Okay, then um, John Slattery, he just looks exactly as he and is. he hasn't aged yeah. a day since Who's Slattery <laughs> anyway, has he really? I mean, it's, it's oh, I did it again. God, no, hang on, no, I did no, say no, I got no, it right. I, I got you got it right. right. I was I was right. hilariously confusing John Slattery with Tony's. Anyway, um, I was saying to Chris just before this that it's it's kind of hilarious how John Slattery. Like, when does Dominic Cooper turn into John Slattery? Because Hayley Atwell plays that character all the way through. Mm. But yeah. miraculously, at some point in the 70s, I'm guessing, mm. Dominic Cooper wakes up and he's John Slattery. <laughs> it must be when the hair changes colour. Right. Or when Dom- Dominic Cooper's unavailable. <laughs> I'm guessing <laughs> there might be, the two might be linked. It is a strange one, isn't it? Because, you know, there's um, at some point someone at Marvel went, you know what, Hayley Atwell's going to play Peggy Carter at all all stages of her life so she's going to play her in her 30s she's going to play her in the uh, in you know Agent Carter you know in the 40s and the 50s 1940s 1950s you know she's going to play her in her late in her 90s in Captain America Winter Soldier so we might as well have her in her 60s as well in in uh, and it works Ant-Man. great hmm. works it great. does work great but then someone also decided that no we're going to we're going to cast two different Howard Starks yeah mm. it's it's weird mm. isn't it it is weird and there's no and I'm not dissing either performer because they're both very, very good. And John Slattery in his one scene here, but there's I guess no, the there's no sense of a personality overlapping. Not really. Is there really? Not really. Like Dominic Cooper's Howard Stark is a bit of a, a bit of a louche. He's a bit of a, a bit of a player. But hmm. no, Douglas, Douglas looks amazing. That's he does. That has kind of got me excited about could they do a whole movie? I think Douglas has been talking about this on the press rounds about he wants to see a movie where it's a younger Hank Pym. Teaming yeah. up with you know a young Robert Redford or whatever, I would watch the hell out of that. It's like that film a few years ago that was mooted around Hollywood. You know, was had people attached to it. Where it was called Gemini Man, hmm. and it uh, it was about a young assassin who's uh, an old assassin who has a young clone that goes after him. And the idea was that technology would have caught up to the point where a young Harrison Ford could go after a new Harrison Ford. Actually, we're at that point now, which what? is essentially what Terminator Genesis should have been. Mm. Should have the whole movie should have been. Old Arnie versus Young Arnie, which was actually what Cameron wanted to do for Terminator Two. That was his first idea for it. Mm-hmm. The technology okay. wasn't there to do it now. It yeah, is now that's a great so idea. That's a great idea. Just uh, briefly before we talk uh, further about this scene and starting the film in 1989 with uh, some Shield business, uh, talking of Dougray Scott being angry about Hugh Jackman. Gerard Sanders plays Howard Stark in Iron Man. You see him in a newspaper obituary. When Howard Stark is killed, you see in you know flashback Tony Stark's life. Gerard right. Sanders is is the first Howard Stark, and he must yeah you must be sitting there going, man, come on, surely I could have done something. Oh, he must be throwing twenty five darts at John Slattery's face. Mm. Yes, oh, well. it's like whoever played John Connor in that sort of. You don't really see him in the first ever Terminator, the adult John Connor. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. whoever that was. Anyway, 
Anyhow, uh, shall we move on uh, to discussing the idea that the film opens in 1989 and it, 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 with Hank Pym as a member of S.H.I.E.L.D., signing from S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, you know, handing out his resignation to Peggy Carter and Martin Donovan's evil Mitchell Ooh. Carson. Ooh. And, uh, Who's a character from the comic books. He is a character from the who, comic books. Um, originally almost is Ant-Man himself. He's he's an army guy, who's, he's, or a S.H.I.E.L.D. guy, sorry, who's, who's meant to get the Ant-Man suit. And he has it stolen off him by Eric O'Grady, who is the sleazeball Ant-Man incarnation. And he's kind of the villain in that, so it's mm. a little nod to that. And in fact, they, they, they have a nod that Martin Donovan may return as Mitchell Carson in future installments when he picks up the pin particles at the end. Or not the pin particles, more the, uh, the cross. The serum, the shrinking the cross, serum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, he picks up Darren Cross's um, liquid at the end and he's going to cover himself in Darren Cross's liquid and and uh, then see what happens. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about that later on. So, 1989, do you think that's an interesting place to start? I, I, I liked the scene. I thought the the uh, the Douglas cameo was was very effective, the effects mm-hmm. and everything. Um, I do wonder if it takes away some of the mystery and takes away some of the, the Scott going on a journey with Scott and finding things out as he does, because mm. it basically tells you everything in the first scene, and then you're waiting 25 minutes for Scott Lang to figure out what the suit is and everything. So yeah, I kind of wonder if you know yeah. it would have been more effective if the first time he shrinks, it's kind of a surprise to us as well, rather than yeah. Although you're going to see a film called Ant-Man. No, I, I know <laughs> yeah. you, were, you were expecting it, yeah. I know, but yeah. it it kind of felt a little bit detached from it. It felt like it was telling too much. Yeah, I wonder if keeping Hank Pym off the screen for the first 10, 20 minutes would have been a way to go, maybe. Who knows? But, um, you know, it's, it's fine. Everything, you know, obviously, everything's all connected, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how this film ties into the MCU uh, later on. But, yeah, it, it's fine. The only thing about that opening scene was it felt very TV show-ish to me. And, uh, you know, the idea that, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is an epic, huge, humongously budgeted TV show that's just mm. ongoing, and this is episode eleven. It, that really did feel like a cold opening to me. Yeah, and then you you were going to go into the the credits, starring starring Paul Rudd, also starring Michael Douglas, like Streets of San Francisco, which would have been amazing. Um, but that, that that did feel a little, and you know, part in the part in the expression here, but it did feel a little small for me that that that, that beginning. I don't know if we, you know, they would have started off with the... Uh, so they should have had a bigger table. In the, a much in the bigger room. table. Yeah. A much bigger table. But, you know, hey, it always established, you know, Hank, you know, he lost his wife. It established that he, he has a, a hair trigger temper, which which is useful. It comes into play later on when he tries to punch, when he punches Darren Cross. Hmm. It's, it's nice little seeds are so, mm-hmm. so in there. Should we talk about, should we talk about, the, the movie then introduces us to, uh, to Scott Lang, to Paul Rudd, hmm. who, of course, as most of the actors were, were was cast by Edgar Wright and then he co-wrote the screenplay after Edgar and Joe uh, left the project Ed- Edgar and Joe Cornish of course uh, co-wrote it with Adam McKay and there were a couple of on-set on-set writers as well who don't get credited as Peyton Reed said but um, he was he was indicating that they, they should have done But so what do we think of, uh, of Scott Lang very interesting introduction being punched in a prison yeah, I liked that. That gag was very good, where he's getting uh, duffed up, and it turns out to be their, their kind of goodbye ritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's good, Rudd, isn't he? I mean, yeah. he's, he's just great. Yeah. He's great in everything. Yeah. Think, think of a name of bad Paul Rudd performance. Do it now. You can't. I, I can't. See, you can't. I can't. Um, <laughs> Except maybe that, uh, what's that, that the film he was the, the the bad guy in, the action movie years ago? That dreadful uh, sci-fi cop thing he did in the 90s or the 2000s or something oh, like that. Oh, yeah, Gen Y Cops or something Gen like Y Cops, yeah, yeah. that's it, where he has these bleach blonde and there's there's the highlights reel of, of Paul Rudd on, on YouTube. 
uh, in that movie. That uh, it's still not his, sounds amazing. It's though. not his. Yeah, he's still amazing in it. Yeah. Who am I? Who am I kidding? Uh, he's great, and he brings. He brings a slightly different flavour. He brings, you know, when he, when he was first cast, I thought he would, you know, he would be bloody good. But he brings this slightly everyman-ish quality. Like he's not as wisecracking as Chris Pratt is. He's yeah. not as droll as Tony Stark is. There's something. There's something more grounded he, about he's him. More, he's more world weary. He's more tired. He's a bit sort of beaten up. He sort of has this sort of rumpled look to him, Paul Rudd, mm. which and obviously a, Judd Apatow uses to good effect. Um, aside from old Hawkeye, he's well. He's the first proper Marvel hero to have a daughter yeah. and, a, and a wife and have have a kind of van and this is kind of a movie about two dads and two daughters which is mm-hmm. something different yeah hmm. which makes gives it an interesting dynamic i think yeah absolutely um i feel like they've maybe taken the edge off him he's more of a kind of small time crook in the comics and uh, in this they kind of bend over backwards to explain that he's actually a great guy yeah, he doesn't the, like he doesn't like violence. He, he, that's, that's, that's a key thing. He keeps saying, "Oh, I don't like violence." Don't he does, like violence. Not only you know. does he not like violence, but the yeah. robbery he did was even you know to yeah. give, give all the money from evil people mm. to good people. He doesn't keep any of the money himself. Yeah, which he, did, he like, did in his earlier robberies, right? Uh, well, presumably, he was in, he was yeah. In, yeah, but it, yeah, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, they they set him up as being a great guy from the beginning, and I wonder if it might have had more of a journey had he been a bit of a scuzzball, mm. more of one. Yeah. I can kind of see why they didn't go in that direction, but yeah, it's interesting though because Chris Pratt in uh, Star Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy has that. Um, maybe they wanted to change it because of that has relatively the same arc where he is mm. a rogue and a scoundrel. And at the beginning of the movie, he's doing something illicit and he's ripping people off left, right, and center. And by the end of the movie, he's legitimately trying to save the galaxy. Uh, maybe they wanted to go in a slightly different direction, so it's not quite the same arc yeah. for Scott Lang. Um, so he's a bit more altruistic right from the off. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call into question, Dan. Your description of Paul Rudd is rumpled. I don't he think is, he's, he's, he's very he's, rumpled. He's not rumpled. He the man is, is chiseled. Look at him. Look like, at the picture from now. My no, 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 God. no. He's like, he's like, <laughs> he's like a fine cotton shirt that just hasn't been ironed. I don't agree with that at all. He has a face that's been carved out of alabaster. It's, it's amazing. I think his grooming, uh, his grooming uh, ritual is, is fairly. Fairly, fairly extraordinary. Uh, he's yeah. got to, he's got to just climbed out of bed, kind of, kind of uh, look to him. No, he's got smooth yes. skin. Has been woven by spiders. We, we need to move on. We need anyway, to move on. I, uh, mean, I, I did like the way that the movie portrayed him as being very smart. The whole, the way they did it. They yes. didn't, you didn't just hear he is smart. You actually saw him doing it, and I really yeah. liked the way he got into that safe. Yes, absolutely. Safes, safes, the safes. Yeah. Where he Just Heisenbergs his way in, doesn't he? He, you yeah. know, he uses science. Yay, science! Mm-hmm. Um, I really like that as well. Yeah, he, yeah. he says, "I have a master's in uh, electric, uh, electrical engineering." I think is what he says. Yes. And then for once, the actually he actually steps up the plate. And, and you've got a great and, Titanic and gag. It. Yes, off the back of it, absolutely from his um, from his his buddies, his underworld buddies, who are represented by ethnic minorities, which yes. is slightly dodgy, um, but they are hilarious, yes. especially Michael Pena. Who I think stole this movie? Yeah, Anthony think, the Ant and Michael Pena uh, stole this movie. Oh, uh, should we talk about Anthony the Ant later on? Because I don't, I'm not sure I'm ready to talk about Anthony. It's um, pretty emotional. It is pretty emotional. It wasn't even a real ant; it was CG. It doesn't help, Dan. Computer-generated insect. Yeah, because I believe I believed he was real. <laughs> I believed he was real. Yeah, I love. Um, quick, quick note about how funny the film is. Because yeah. uh, we watched it, I think Dan, did you watch it with us the first time? I can't remember. Yeah. Um, in that, in a, in a small screen room with some journalists, and you know, we've said this in the podcast before that a lot of the journalists can be stuffed shirts, and you know, it, it, it it's fine if the film plays well. But then I saw it a second time with 
a massive audience. Everyone left before the stings, didn't they? That was what I remember from that screening. Yeah. It's like a Marvel film and it finishes and everyone left apart from you and I. And I know. We were sitting there going, guys. How, how do you not know to stay around uh, for a Marvel movie? Fools. Yeah. Perhaps they just didn't care. <laughs> they, they might not well have not cared. But yeah, it's a very funny film. And I think those th- those uh, those three guys steal it. Michael Pena is fantastic. And I love, I, and again, this is one of the things I, I love about Marvel movies. Um, they nail the ending almost every single time. Uh, I think they do, you know, for, whether it's, whether it's you know, I had a date at the end of Captain America, the first Avenger, or uh, I love the ending of Age of Ultron with, with Cap just about to say Avengers Assemble and then it cuts off. Uh, and I love the ending, you know, whether it's Tony Stark's end, I am Iron Man at the end of Iron Man. And I love this. I love that it ends on a supporting character, not the main hero, but a supporting character having told some incomprehensible story uh, and then blinking, just enthusiastically blinking at the camera or not the camera but at Paul Rudd and mm. then cut I, I I really love that I think I think they nail their ending we'll get to the stings later mm. right yeah just on the, the it being a very funny movie note uh, I was delighted to see Greg Turkington Dan do you know who Greg Turkington is? <laughs> I do not know who I'm Greg Turkington is he's no. a kind of a cult he is uh, uh, basically Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington do a spoof movie review show where it's kind yeah. of I guess it's a spoof of Ebert and uh, Gene Siskel okay. Yeah. and okay. um, it's called On Cinema at the Cinema and yeah. it's a, a web thing I encourage people to go watch it it's very kind of dry and ironic in the in the, the Tim and Eric sense but Peyton Reed is a huge fan of, of that as well yeah. and so I was delighted to hear he was putting him in the movie and he, he plays the manager of the Baskin Robbins I was going to say store. is that who the manager of the Baskin yes. Robbins store is yeah, yeah. yeah. okay so, okay yeah so yeah. I, I I thought he was brilliant, and I thought the whole the the Baskin Robbins uh, what's the line? Baskin Robbins always finds out. <laughs> Baskin Robbins always finds out, bro. Yep, yep. That was awesome. That was a very fun mm. line. He's great. Turkington's fantastic. We do. I discussed it a little bit with Peyton Reed um, on the, uh, the interview you've just heard. Yeah, he's so funny. I love what I love about him as well is that if you watch on cinema at the cinema, uh, Turkington usually has his arms folded, and when we first see him in the movie. He has his arms folded, and he, he sits there in the, in the classic Turkington it's clothes. Classic Turkington. Classic Turkington. Classic Five yeah. bags of popcorn uh, for Greg Turkington in this movie. But it is a very funny film. And uh, so T.I. is very funny as Dave. He has a great line uh, when they're in the van and uh, Bobby Cannavale and, and Wood Harris. Avon Barksdale, by the way. <laughs> Just shout out to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which now has yeah. Avon and Stringer in, yes. <laughs> in it as well. I wonder if those characters um, will ever meet. That would be amazing if they and, did. And they have a really meaningful conversation whilst looking across at the city <laughs> at night time. And we'll know what's going to happen. And you just can't stop it. It's like destiny. Sorry. <laughs> Where was I? It's just cosmic destiny. burners. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, there's that great joke in the fan when um, they're banging on the fan and uh, Bobby kind of finally opens the fan and, and T.I. goes, uh, you're not going to believe this, but a black guy who looks exactly like me uh, bundled us up and put us in the back of the fan and then drove off. That's really funny. And then David uh, Das Malkin as uh, Kurt has one of the lines of the film. I think the line of the film is probably Basket Roberts always fans out, bro. But uh, it is the work of the gypsies is also <laughs> a fantastic line. I just want to point out in casting quirks of you know every movie is a superhero film these days David Dasmalkin is also one of the few people who straddles both the DC movies mm. and the Marvel movies because of course he is Dan he, in the, he, in, he is in the Dark Knight he is not the Joker he is one of the Joker's goons who yeah, gets um, Joker. interrogated <laughs> by uh, Harvey Dent yes yes I don't know why I said Joker you said Dark Knight and I just instinctively went Joker yes he's, he's yeah, the Joker no, uh, but yes, that no, was, right, that was Heath Ledger uh, who was a fantastic Australian born actor who uh, uh, put in a brilliant performance that he won an uh, uh, Oscar for after he sadly died 
great. Yes. Oh, not, not, no, okay. I said great before before that bit. Anyway, <laughs> yes, yes. He, yeah. he is usually terrifying in things. I find him mm. quite, quite sort of not upsetting to look at, but he, he has a kind of. <laughs> I'm being unfair to him, but I mean, it's a compliment because he's a great actor, but he, oh, he is usually amazing. fairly intense and stuff, mm. so it was like nice you, to see him. Nick, in many thanks, ways. thanks, Dan. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. You're talking of funny business. My joke of uh, the movie is probably The Cure. Uh, Siri joke when um, yeah was it Yellow Jacket says disintegration or disintegrate I've got yeah yeah that's yeah. that's funny but, but the, the song by the way just want to say the song is not disintegration what's the song Dan? it plays the album disintegration and the song is plain song which is the first track on the album which is a fantastic tune and that um, would have been even better if they'd been falling out of a plane instead of a helicopter no but plain P L A I N song plain song yeah so I don't know my cure okay mm. all I know is that it, you know, it's Friday I'm in love. That's all I know. Hmm. And it is Friday. And I am in love. Oh, so this is, this is great. great. This is, it's all good. We're all happy for yeah. each other. Um, but, but, but my problem with that, and it really took me out of the movie, is that they didn't say, Siri, I'm going to disintegrate you, because otherwise Siri wouldn't play that. So Yellow Jacket should have had a henchman called Siri for this. <laughs> you would have written that all the way into the movie. Or yeah. that, or that uh, could have been um, Scott Lang's nickname. Oh. Siri. Siri Lang. Also yeah. on the soundtrack, uh, Adam and the Ants. Yes. Yeah. So, where, where, where? Oh, I, I don't I know. I, I got that from the end. I'm not an Adam. Are you an Adam and the Ants guy? Not really. No. I was actually quite surprised to see it come at the end because I, I didn't go. Oh, they're playing Adam and the Ants. Mm. Um, at any point. So I missed it. Sorry. Hmm. Okay. What was your favourite joke, Dan, on the movie? Nick just said it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> what was your second favourite joke? <laughs> yeah. Dan? What, was your fa- what was your second favourite, Dan? Come on. I've no. I've. Uh, all right. Okay. Um, I'll do one which actually isn't one of my favourite jokes, but it'll bring it into the conversation. So ask again. What was your favourite joke, Dan? Well, I really like that um, that action beat when they're fighting and he just picks up the, the ping pong bat and thwops. Yes. And thwops Yellow Jacket into, that... the, uh, into the thing. And he's going, yes. And it's just a really good visual gag. It's fantastic. And the, it's the sound, isn't it? The boop. Yeah. It just absolutely sells it. Uh, that got the biggest laugh, I think, at the uh, the major screening that was at, the, the big multimedia screening that was I at. think my favourite joke got a big, slightly bigger laugh. Really? I wasn't at your screening, but... Well, no, no, yep. true. This is true. So the the cure joke got a slightly bigger, I, I, bigger laugh. That's why. No, the the, the, yeah. t- the ping pong definitely got the biggest laugh. No, that definitely got the biggest. Laugh. Definitely, we'll, we'll the, settle this later. It was yeah. on the laughometer. It was easily a seven point nine, whereas I think this integration was more of a six point four. Okay, well, we'll okay. figure this out later. So, uh, you know, it, it's a very funny film. We've all established that, but we should talk about the emotion of the movie now, and not just the fact that it's a mother, a uh, fun mother. And not just the fact it's a father and daughter story, and a father and daughter story, and two father and daughter stories. But let's let's talk about let's talk about the uh, the biggest loss I think in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to date. And two four seven, Anthony, <laughs> R.I.P. Anthony. Um, he's he's gone. I've gone weepy, and he ain't ever coming back. He ain't ever coming back. It's it's so. Uh, you guys can talk about it because I'm a bit joked up. But we, I mean, we, we, we know that, that characters have died in the Marvel, you know, first before and, and, and come back. So I, I, I'm just confident that Anthony will return. It's an ant that's been hit by a bullet. I'm not entirely sure. Which I'll tell you what, that was a bloody good shot. He's firing blind at that point. It's merely the one shot. He would never be able to do that again. I think Anthony, I think it will be revealed that he was using a special quantum bullet and that Anthony <laughs> is now in the quantum realm uh, just ruining picnic, quantum picnics. And um, he will be back. 
if I believe anything, it's that Anthony the Ant will return. Um, isn't it the female ants who have wings? Yeah, no, I'm not an expert. Enough. I thought I thought because I thought the winged ants were like the ones that wanted to be new queens. That would that's why they fly off to go and find new colonies. I could be completely wrong here, but I think Anthony might be female. Well, even if he were, then Scott Lang doesn't necessarily know that. No, I know. It's not like he has like a an ant package that you can lift up the undercarriage and see. I mean, you know, Scott Lang is attached to Anthony, and Anthony's loss is a tragic one, and one that I think the film struggles to recover from. <laughs> no, it's, 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 you know, but it's fascinating and fun that they picked out uh, one ant in particular for him to bond with, and he even has to feed him that little droplet of water, and, you know, they really become pally, don't they? And then Anthony gets shot, shot dead. And uh, I mentioned this to um, uh, Peyton Reed as well, but I genuinely thought they were going to kill Hank Pym as well at the end when he gets uh, when he gets shot by Darren Cross. It was interesting because mm-hmm. I think it was last summer when they were still shooting that somebody right. tweeted, somebody working on the film tweeted a photo of Michael Douglas with his stunt double and his stunt double, or just stand-in or whatever, they both had a red blood patch over their heart like oh, where, the, right. where the character had been shot. Yes. So they gave it away that that he was going down. Mm. And so I kind of thought, right. this is a gigantic spoiler. Well, it still is a spoiler, yes. but... I forgot about that. Um, so, yeah, that was a bit sloppy. It's, it's a weird one, because, you know, I've complained in the past about how Marvel don't have the cojones to properly kill people off. They always kind of, you know, dial back. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I actually found myself, when, when Hank Pym got shot, I actually finding myself thinking, ah, I, don't, I don't really don't want this character to die. I like the fact that he would still be around in future Marvel films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the, there's this continuation of that character. Um, uh, so I kind of contradicted myself there a bit. I think, honestly, I'm sorry to upset you, I didn't give a crap about Anthony. Couldn't care less. Whatever, it's an ant. I bet you stand an ants, don't you, Dan? <laughs> but you just crush them. No. Does an ant have a quarrel with a boot? No, no, no. It's a good line, but no. It would be amazing if, if Anthony Ant does come back and gets into a fight with Loki and defeats his boot. <laughs> and that would be an amazing callback. But let's go back to Hank Pym because uh, I have a couple of interesting facts. Ooh, oh, yeah. I said, I said at the beginning... Let's, let's, have, let's have a Pym workout. I yep. said at the beginning that Nick, who was on set, would have some interesting facts and I wasn't sure he could deliver on that. Well, this first fact is really really not interesting in the least. It's actually the most boring fact I think I've ever, I've oh, ever learned. But brilliant. I went to Hank Pym's... I was in his bedroom. Really? That's not creepy because no, he wasn't there. Well, did you watch him sleep? I didn't watch him sleep. I, I went to Atlanta to Pinewood Studios there and um, essentially they had the entire Pym mansion, including the Pymnasium, as Paul Rudd <laughs> uh, phrased it, where he gets his training montage. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, his lab where they had real ants scurrying around. Mm-hmm. And they also had his bedroom, which I don't believe actually appears in the film, does it? No, I don't believe it does. This is my first. Well, hang on, you see, does. Scott, Scott does sleep yeah. in a, does Scott sleep in a bed. Okay, this, yeah. is my first, this is my first fact. Yeah. Hank Pym's Bedside Reading is a book. It's a real book. It's called The Elegant Universe, Super Strings, Hidden Dimensions, and the Quest for the Ultimate Theory. I was wondering what that book was. Well, that, of course that's going to be on his thing, because he wants to find his wife. Is the next book Jack Reacher? It's a real Reacher. book. So if you want wow. the extended experience, that you can go and buy that. I don't recommend it. I had a flick through it. It looked really dull. Mm-hmm. My second fact is that Hank Pym's outfit and look is based on Tom Wolfe. Writer. Uh, yeah, okay. My third fact is a question. This is my final one. Okay. In which previous Marvel film does Hank Pym get referenced? Ooh. There's only one of them. Ooh. Is it one of the X-Men films? It's not. Okay. It's not. Christian. It's a Marvel Cinematic Universe film, is Marvel it? Cinematic Universe, and Kevin Feige confirmed. He's not mentioned by name, but Dr. Selvig so says, I'm going to email him. He has a uh, friend at S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes, and I'm going to email him. And that is, that, that is Hank Pym that he's talking about. That's Hank Pym he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But Hank Pym's left S.H.I.E.L.D. In by Thor. that point. 
But it he, no, he, he says he says he he has an expert. He knew was an expert. I always presumed that was Banner. No, because he wrote, he mentions Banner separately to that. Right. But yeah, it is four. And I thought that I thought that was interesting because I had a wander around Hank Pym's house, and he doesn't have a computer. So is he going to internet cafes to check his email? No, he's got the downstairs lair, hasn't he? Yeah. And by the way, I, I know a few people have had a, a problem with why Scott takes the suit and puts the suit on. Putting the suit on is a bit more of a leap, but taking the suit, I think, is actually fine because his he's figuring, I've gone through two safes to get here, and this is the only thing in this room. Ergo, vis-a-vis, concordantly, <laughs> uh, it must be worth stealing. I get that. I thought it was a bit odd that he tries it on in a bathroom. Well, he's, a, he's a fetishist. You I, would, I would. Well, you, I you, would. You, you, you normally wearing sort of quite skin-tight leather ensemble <laughs> outfits, Dan, so that doesn't shock me. Mm. But, exactly. Um, the biggest no, thing, of course, is that he's coincidentally the same size as Hank Pym. Imagine if he wasn't. Yeah. No film. <laughs> NBA. NBA. Wow, <laughs> this is a chilling, a chilling alternate dim- uh, universe think, that you, you're presenting yeah. here. Maybe, though, but, um, no, but the thing is, right, uh, maybe the... Maybe that's why you work with me. It. Work with me here. The Pym <laughs> particles yes. operate in such a way that whoever no. wears the Ant-Man suit, no. it changes no, size to perfectly fit their body because no. it's a suit that grows and shrinks. Or, or Hank Pym has really done his homework and he has found yes. the perfect guy who is the same size as him. I didn't quite, I didn't quite buy that. That Hank Pym was you know, that kind of, that genius that right. you could spread word okay. through the criminal underworld and, and find... So hang on, hang on, hang on. So you can you can feel for for an ant that's shot, and yet you can't accept... That, that. comes from the heart, Dan. <laughs> comes from the heart, something you do not have. Yeah, you can't explain how you, how you feel. It just, it's just something that happens. No, I love that. I love the, you know... Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, it's, it's a bit hard to buy that he's been slowly manipulating Scott into this position. Although it does make for two of the... the, the it the do, most, does the, make the, for the, the, the funny, yeah. hilarious... Uh, there are two of them, aren't there? Those, those kind of montages? Well, yeah, of... this one that ends the film, um, which is which is great. And that includes the uh, the now uh, de rigueur Stan, cameo, Stan Lee cameo, uh, which is very fun. And, uh, you know, and... Uh, yeah. But I, I kind of like the idea, though, of... Do you think Hank... we'll ever... Sorry. Do you think we'll ever get a Marvel film where all the Stan Lees bump into each other because this, this is a universe where there are like now 25 of this guy <laughs> something like that well what's going on if you, if you are they going to ever yeah. explain why there's so many of him yeah. he's, he's Maddox the multiple man Maddox yes that one him him yeah multiple Stanleys multiple universes okay. and it would be like time cop they all meet but I love the idea of uh, Hank Pym googling uh, cat burglar altruistic about 5'10 <laughs> <laughs> and then getting like a, a list of people at his internet cafe where <laughs> yeah. he's checking his getting his emails from Dr. Selvig yeah. no I think the find he he doesn't use the internet he uses the internet okay, oh, okay. okay. alright that's great okay. that's yep. really good that's good uh, should we talk about some other things let's talk about um, the idea that it's a father daughter story as Nick uh, mentioned and the relationship between uh, Michael Douglas and uh, Evangeline Lilly as Hope Van Dyne hmm. daughter of Janet Van Dyne who is of course as the film reveals uh, the Wasp and uh, the relationship in the comics over the years between Hank and Janet uh, is interesting and fractured and a bit tortured and very dark. It, yeah, and very it dark. can get very dark. And it's it's interesting that they decided not to go with Janet that she's dead or or quantumed or she's off with Sam Beckett or doing whatever it is that she's doing. Uh, but so, at the beginning of the film, yeah, I mean to expand on that, Hank in in some of the comics is. Um, 
almost psychotic, I'd say. He's alcoholic. He's a wife beater. Well, he creates Ultron. In the comics, he he's he's a genius, and Ant Man was one of the, the founding members of the Avengers. So he, you know, he's he's a big noise in terms of Marvel history, and he's a genius. And he created Ultron, and he didn't take that well. So as well as becoming Ant Man, and then later on Giant Man, and you know, he was Yellow Jacket as well at one point. He creates Ultron. Ultron goes nuts, and and that's always something that's haunted him. So. But I mean, it gets it goes to some really dark places. Um, I was reading the big omnibus, which has just come out, I think, of of lots of classic, and they have a at the end they have a kind of biography of him, which is just incredibly dark. You go, wow, this is really weird, twisted stuff. And yeah, he's a very dark character at points, mm. not not in all of it, but yeah. but definitely goes there. So I think when they, when they talked about making this movie in the first place. A lot of fans were going, is, "Are you going to go there? Are they going to? They can't go there, can they? You know." Mm. Well, it's the same with Iron Man, where there are the alcoholism stuff they yeah. haven't really got into, but I don't know even more with Hank Pym, I think. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But um, the relationship between uh, Hope and Hank, I think, is all, is more important to the film than the relationship between Scott and his daughter Cassie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I have to confess, I didn't really buy the whole "Why doesn't she just." be Ant-Man thing you know they kind of they they, no, they, I, they, they I, rode it they made sure they addressed it but no, it's because it's really obvious question that hangs over it you know why bother well, he does, he's already lost his wife why would he want why would he put his daughter in harm's way I, I, of course he is putting his daughter mm. in harm's way by putting her yeah she's yeah. already but to, in a, put to a lesser extent a far lesser extent I think he's already yeah. lost his wife by having her wear one of these outfits so you know to put his daughter in the, in the outfit although he, they reveal don't they that the suit is there yeah so he yeah. must have considered it. Yeah, didn't want to do it. Yeah, uh, and yeah. Well, would that have been would that have been the suit that she wore, or would she have got to wear the Ant Man costume as well? Because I, yeah, because the I pin particles would have meant that it yeah. would have reformed to, to fit her body. Or hang yeah. on, was that was that outfit just one of the wasps like well, extra suits? As you say, they were working on it for her mother. They weren't working on it oh, for okay. her. So yeah, it was yeah. it was uh, it was it was it was definitely the setup for her. But I no, yeah. I I absolutely get that. And of course, the, the the script does also does mention as well that she came to him. That they were estranged. There's a genuine estrangement there, uh, where she hasn't given them the time of day for twenty years or whatever it is, uh, until she sees that Darren Cross is beginning to go down this path mm-hmm. and is a bad is a bad idea. So she uh, goes to her her dad. So from that point on, I can yeah, I, I can get that. I can get why. And Dan, didn't, you know, this is interesting as a father that you're you're, you're saying this because um, Nick and I are not parents. We're not Nick, we're not Nick, are we? I don't believe so. No, 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 we're not. Um, but I can see that he wouldn't want to put his daughter in the same situation. Yeah, but when my when my kids are adults, they can you know that's them. Whatever's their choice is their choice. Yeah, but what if they want to do something that that is still in, in your control? Um, hang on, right, okay, I'm really trying to make a mental leap here to try and to imagine... You imagine your son as my, my, One of my children uh, we might be becoming a superhero. <laughs> we might be getting into strange territory yeah. here. But um, I, I, I like that I like that uh, aspect of it. I thought, first time around, I thought that Evangeline Lilly's uh, performance was a bit too cold and standoffish. Um, but second time around, it, it worked a lot more for me, especially once you know that there is that underlying emotion there that, you know, she's, she's working with her father, Hank, um, but she doesn't necessarily want to work with him uh, in close proximity as well. Um, I will say, can we have more return in movies on sons and daughters who are estranged from their parents calling him by their first name and not dad? And then we always know that by the third act they will call him dad, which is what happens here. Anyway, small point. Quibble, moving on. 
Well, you know, the whole the whole, you know, estranged fathers thing is just in virtually every Hollywood movie ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's father sons, father's daughters is that's that's seems to be the food of drama at the moment. I liked uh, I liked Evangeline Lily. I thought she was great. You know, she I think there was there was stuff that they filmed I, when I was on set I got to watch uh they were in the gym and there was some really funny stuff they were shooting. They were just improving away and in the movie it's like 3 seconds of screen time. <laughs> so you I think they shot a lot and they just couldn't get it in, but there yeah. are, she is she does do some funny stuff. Okay, which yeah, maybe yeah. we'll see some deleted scenes. Yeah. But um yeah, they were both doing Paul Rudd was doing an extraordinary thing where he was putting his leg across on the mat to make a farting noise, which is something he said he perfected on a lovey man. <laughs> <laughs> he was sitting in the leather chair, but he was just doing this extraordinary long day. yeah, I hope that's on the DVD. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I know I, I I like her. I'm not gonna say so, especially second time around, it, it really clicked for me. Hmm. Um Yeah, I, th- I, I thought I, she was really good. I actually yeah. wanted to see more of her in yeah. the film. You know, I wanted her to do more. And she was rocking a spalco which is what I call that hairstyle, after Irina Spalko. <laughs> okay. That hairstyle is no, the best I call thing it, about I Crystal call Skull. It, I, see, I call it the Mia Wallace. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the Spalko is mm. a little bit more Or, or the Louise Brooks. Yeah, I was going to say the Louise Brooks. Spalko <laughs> is more fun to say than, than either of those words. So. But mm. she's a character from what film? Um, it was a fan fiction movie, uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I think it was. you can find it on the internet. I'll Google it later on. Yep. Yes, it's the fourth uh, film yeah. in the Indiana Jones trilogy. I didn't even know they made a fourth one. Down to be honest, that's that's very interesting. Good news to me. Let's talk. So let's let's talk about. Did you did, did that work for you, Nick? The emotion of the of the film? Because she said, didn't she? She uh, uh, to you and our and your empire uh, feature that mm. the movie became more American and more emotional as it as it went along. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it was still it was still funny. Um, yeah, g- generally it did. Generally it did. Um, I don't I don't know if we needed to see that flashback scene with with the wasp necessarily. I mean, should, yeah, we talk in, about, should we talk about the tie-ins with the Marvel stuff? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. It was interesting. Peyton Reed says that there were several versions of that as well, that there was a voiceover-only scene and there were, there were different iterations of that at one point before they decided to go the way they, they did. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, the idea of... I think it's there to set up... Uh, and again, as I said to Peyton Reed, this movie, you know, Ghostbusters goes out of its way to go don't cross the streams, bad things will happen and then they cross the streams and nothing happens. Uh, whereas in this <laughs> one, it's like don't... Don't touch the regulator because bad things will happen, and then bad things do happen. And it's only that he gets out of it with, with by the skin of his teeth and by by sheer. So luck. he goes furry two thousand one space odyssey. It it does, does isn't it? I thought Paul Rudd was going to turn into the Star Child, which <laughs> would have been hard to buy. Um, it didn't make didn't make any scientific sense though. Right. If he goes subatomic, why does he still have form? Right. Because I, I get that he would still have a physical form if he shrinks while he's still in the you know physical realm as we know it. But once he's gone subatomic. And how is he? How is he even perceiving sound waves? Dan, it sounds like you've been reading the Elegant Universe, the Strings <laughs> Hidden Dimension, the Quest for the Ultimate Theory. You know, it's like, like nice, yeah, we, nice we, effects, good in three D. We don't get know. It, we don't know. What, we don't know what would happen if you went into the quantum realm or the microverse, as they can't call it. Um, Why not? I th- I actually thought we were going to get to see the Micronauts. Yeah. You know, Who are the Micronauts, Dan? For? The Micronauts are it's part, of the, part of the Marvel world where the idea is if you shrink down enough, you go into the subatomic realm. And there's actually a, a microverse, as Chris just said, there. And it's, it's a whole other universe, except it's happening on a, a sub-microscopic scale. Do they have tiny scale. cars? Do they have micro-machines? No, they're kind of like, I think, as, as I remember, <laughs> they have spaceships and, and, and like giant insect things Sounds and amazing. stuff like that. That's and incredible. 
Yeah, I can't even remember the characters' names, but I had these really cool Micronauts toys, which were like they were like figures held together by bits of like magnet. If anyone listening has still got any of these toys, send me a photo. I want to see one again. All the toys. And 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 um, they had like little magnetic balls, and you click together, and you could change the body parts. So you wow. can mix up the good guys' body parts with the bad guys' parts. Mm. Okay. And they had centaur bits as well. Like they, you could stick the top end of the body onto like legs or onto a horse's body, and I really want to see the Micronauts in the Marvel Universe, please. I wasn't allowed toys. No, I was. Wow. Well, okay. I was going to say that took I a dark was. turn. I had lots uh, of GI Joes, but we'll get into that in, in, in the GI Joe three podcast. Um, but yeah, you can see. Uh, so in the in the quantum realm, there is a little cameo. There's a little well, Easter yeah. egg. I, I, but yeah, I asked Peyton Reed about this as as um, hopefully you've just heard um, as well, but. And he said, because I'd only said I hadn't missed, I, I'd missed it. And he said there is something there, and I haven't seen the film since we we interviewed him, um, since I interviewed him. But Helen O'Hara, who is not here today because she's um, in America, uh, she says she thinks it's a silhouette of the Wasp. That we, because I thought it might be Doctor Strange. I thought honestly, when the movie when the movie went full two thousand and one, which I totally wasn't expecting, and. I could have I could have actually gone on for another one or two minutes of that. Why would why why would it be Doctor Strange though? He's, th- like, he's mystical magic, and this is this is he like is the whatever. Myst- he's mystical know. and magical, but he has influence across many realms and many dimensions. And Kevin Feige has already spoken about Doctor Strange being the key to opening up different dimensions and different realms and alternate universes and all that sort of stuff. All that sort of cool cool stuff, and. Uh, I genuinely thought that it's, we would the minute we started going to that world and it goes really trippy and I could, like I said I could have taken an extra couple of minutes of that. Yeah. Um, I thought he's going to be saved by Doctor Stephen Strange. That somehow Strange is going to be in this realm and he's yeah you may make that face but that's what I thought. I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm also glad that. I'm didn't glad it didn't happen because happen. it felt like there was enough, possibly a little bit too much of the pushing other definitely too pushing much. other series along I, the fa- the falcon scene i got i got to say when the, when the new avengers hq appeared i kind of thought cool are we going to get to see like iron man and i thought they were going to kind of throw in and i mean i i'd love anthony mackie i love what he does with with the falcon but it felt a bit like we got the sort of cheapest possible version of <laughs> I, I thought it would have been really cool if he'd he'd shrunk down and he'd broken in <laughs> and we'd just seen ant-man like sneaking around running around and you just see the avengers even if yeah. it's the new lineup just you know, sitting around, relaxing, chatting, playing, yeah. you know, playing Paul or something, and, kinda, yeah. and he sort of like goes yeah. through, and you know, what do they do when they're not saving the world and they just got a bit of downtime, you know, like firemen, and um, and then and then he gets the thing, and then he gets out. Thought, that would have been a big cheer. It felt a little bit, a little bit. You kind of imagine what could have been with that scene. Yeah. Rather than rather than going, this yeah, is but I think if it, if it had been that, we would have. Got, that's actually a really nice idea. That would, that would have been fun. But we know they, contractually, they should, they should contractually speaking, they're not going to be able to make that happen. I like it with CG. Um, you know, it's just not, it's just not going to. Or work. you could have just had their legs, and you wouldn't have had to get the actors. And you yeah, could have just had you could have just had yeah. all the you know. Yeah, that's that actually, would have been fun. That's and really him fun. Just running along the floor. But I think, and, as, as Reed said, I think he also wanted the scene where he proves himself by fighting an Avenger. And it, actually, what it what it does. It puts Ant-Man on a level because, you know, at, at that point, the movie's very fun and you're going, OK, ha, 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 he's small and he's running away from rats and blah, blah, blah. But what it does is it shows that actually he's got serious potential and he can get inside uh, someone's costume and and dismantle him from within. And he can actually hold his own against, yeah, admittedly, maybe not one of the alpha Avengers, but yeah. I also think Mackie's a lot of fun. And as I said on our regular podcast, for me, that felt like you were reading an Ant-Man comic and 10 pages in. The Falcon turns up, which happens all the time in Marvel comics. 
and we never complain when it happens in the comic, but we seem to complain when it happens in the movies, which is the whole point Not of this universe in the first Not place. Not complaining. The idea, um, was, the idea was nice. I just, but, I just it, no, but it just feels like he's turned up for ten pages. They've had a fight, and he's left again. And also, it's a way, it's a way in of introducing Ant Man into the Avengers world, which is, I think, a, a fun, a fun way to go. Mm. I like the reference to the end of Avengers: Age of Ultron, but maybe that it felt a bit sort of uh, self-deprecating, possibly. Yeah. The you know, oh, city is falling out. I can't remember the exact wording, but they're referring to the they're too busy the dropping fact that every Marvel out of the film for the last four has had a city being or well, something comprised. big falling out of the sky onto something. Yeah, which I'm I'm personally a little bit tired of, but I li- I'd liked that little little joke. Mm. And there was a little Spider-Man reference, of course, which is the. Yes. The heralding, the uh, the re the in- no the introduction really yeah. of Spider Man to uh, the MCU. The MCU. Yeah, uh, yeah. The Sokovia line felt a bit on the nose for me. I'll be honest, because we we were worried about it. I think when we saw one of the trailers where he goes, but you know, and Paul Rudd goes, okay, first things first, we should call the Avengers, which actually works a lot better in the film than it does in the trailer. But uh, mm. the Sokovia line was a little bit too far for me. Talking of on the nose, I do actually like this, but there's a point where Darren Cross says, goes, Tales to Astonish, which <laughs> was the, the kind of the, the banner line for the Ant-Man comics. That's where he made his, that's the, the, the comic he made his debut. Yeah, yeah, Tales to Astonish. Tales, Tales yeah. To Astonish. Um, so, I, I, yeah, it was, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. I think it was deliberately silly. Yeah, it's one of those things that's put there. If you, if you know who Al Milgram is and the, the Milgram Hotel will give you a, a, a laugh, that will give you a laugh. Stan Lee will give you a laugh. And if not, it's fine. Um, I actually thought um, Darren Cross... Corey Stoll's a, a fantastic actor, with or without a wig. But I felt that Darren Cross was possibly the latest in a series of underwhelming MCU villains. Yeah. I think that's the that's one of the few things they've really struggled to crack. Loki mm. aside, it, it's a guy um, wearing a different coloured suit to the hero. He was he was <laughs> Iron Mongery. I mean, yeah. just yeah. at, at Comic Con this year, David Ayer came out to introduce the Suicide Squad, and he made a not so subtle jab at Marvel by saying, "We've got all the best DC's got all the best villains," and. He, uh, yeah, I mean, it, Corey Stoll is, is fun, and it's it's a fine villain. It's okay. I didn't. The, the one thing that that confused me a little bit was is he going? Is he going mad? It's that weird line that didn't really come from anywhere. Hmm. Like, which he says, it's the pen particles that are affecting his mind. They're but making they're him affecting. And, and then there's another line where yeah. Hank Pym says, "Oh, I can't wear it too many times." Or yeah, but they I, but they they, they, they actually made that. the point of showing uh, like the thing where they do the you know the gag about the poor little lamb. Mm-hmm. And he's actually sealed off in a completely different room, and he actually says sterilize the area, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, but, so, then he, but then he doesn't when they, when and that's with the um, with the, with the lamb hmm. that he succeeds in. He's actually exposed. He's in the room, and he doesn't care anymore. But he's already but, going mad before that. Yeah, he's going mad before that. But that's just maybe because he's just. Bonkers? But well, they, they the, put the yeah, line yeah, in the yeah, film. No, no, no. Though, right? there, there is yeah. a line which makes you think that he's not just going mad. I thought they should yeah. have just had him be just experimented. Evil. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of enjoyed. I mean, I'd, I'd like to see a supercut of scenes of evil executives doing things in executive bathrooms. Yeah, yeah. How many times in movies uh, is there someone villainous it felt comes very, into a bathroom yeah. and does something evil? It felt very Dick Jones to me. Yeah, that yeah. bit where he uh, he disintegrates poor Frank. Poor old Frank, who, you know, we all knew was was for the chop the minute that Cross put his hand on his shoulder and went, Frank, we need to have a long talk about this. Mm. I just felt he was a bit grandstandy and, you know, he was he was as calculating, he was calculating when the movie needed him to be calculating and he was done when it needed him to be done. And but, who would have thought that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a businessman would be evil? I mean, you know. I will give them kudos for making him actually fairly 
evil in terms of what he does to lambs and actually squishing a guy. I, I kind of liked they pushed that quite far in terms mm. of how evil he is. Yeah. But further than maybe I've seen in other Marvel films. Yeah. Where he just doesn't care. He'll kill anything. He gets the yellow jacket suit on really quickly. Yes. If you, if you, and Ant Man. Well, no, no, but so does Scott Lang get the Ant Man suit on really quickly. There's the thing that the ants counting, t- counting down 10, 9, 8 in the prison cell. Yes. And, you know, um, even Barksdale's walking well, maybe up. Maybe it's minutes. And then, and then he walks up, and then it's like, he's already he's in the suit. What? How? You know, yeah. unless it's the pin particles again. It's the pin particles. They, they, allow, <laughs> they allow the easy yeah. manipulation well, of a helmet. They make the suit bigger, and then you put it on, and it shrinks to fit. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Darren Cross is the main villain. Uh, one little uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, tie-in as well that we haven't really mentioned is that those mother efforts at Hydra are still knocking around. What? Well, they Honestly, ever die. It's like a snake with loads of different heads. You, <laughs> you cut one off and then it's still alive. And you cut another one off and it's two, still and alive. And two heads take, a, take its place. And yeah. what's going, which almost never happens with a snake, but that would be really weird if that happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually quite like that. I quite like the fact also they were clearly low-level Hydra. But that makes sense. That makes sense because how many terrorist organisations can you truly destroy? There's also apparently a reference to what is the name of the Mandarins? Um, the Ten Rings. The Ten Rings, apparently yeah. uh, in one of the uh, Michael Peña uh, kind of flashbacky montages you see the guy he was in prison with and he's got a Ten Rings tattoo. Apparently. I didn't spot that myself, but that's that's what I heard. That's what I heard. It's a word on the street. Uh, but yeah, does this mean Gary Shandling is coming back? I hope so. <laughs> God, I hope so. Well, he got properly arrested at the end oh, of uh, Captain America, didn't he? Yeah, he'll be back. He'll be back. He I, really love, I love did. that Gary Shandling is floating around on the on the periphery of this universe as some kind of villainous senator. I do love that. Disney, there's yes. a couple of Disney references in this okay. movie. Yeah, uh, Flounder from The Little Mermaid is in Cassie's room, the little girl's room. Oh, I missed the that toy. And the song, the the song that Michael Pena whistles is the Small World After All. Indeed, indeed. That's right. So wow. There we go. How isn't, lovely. Isn't corporate synchronisation a wonderful thing? <laughs> synchronicity, corporate synchronicity that's is one a, of my favourite things That's a brand synergy high five, people. Yeah, yeah. Well, there we go, well, brand synergy. Yeah. yeah. And you can enjoy this brand synergy as well in Empire Magazine, which is available in all good and evil news agents uh, priced. I can't even remember what the price is. £4.50. Anyway, £4.50, that's very, very good. And of course, you can you can enjoy even more brand synergy on empireonline.com, which is just just wonderful. Right, so a couple more things to talk about before we, uh, before we go. We've talked about one sting. The wasp sting, <laughs> uh, but we haven't. I saw. I saw someone. Dan, I hate you. I don't. I actually, genuinely don't know why we let you in the pop booth. Anyway, there's. Uh, I saw someone refer to uh, post credit sting the other day on Twitter as secret endings, which I think I, I think that's really sweet. I quite like that. Secret so, endings. Secret endings. So they're not post credit stings, but, but they're not endings. Secret endings. They're not yeah, endings, they especially endings. the one we're about to talk about. This is true. It's definitely not an ending. All right, it's so the middle of a scene. <laughs> the secret ending sounds like a very sleazy strip club. I like secret endings. Stop, stop treading on my dreams. Okay, so the 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 final post credits sting is a scene from Captain America: Civil War, where uh, Cap and Falcon are uh, in a room with Bucky. Now this is interesting, and Bucky appears to have his arm crushed in a situation that requires someone who can get into small spaces or vision. I was very confused by this. I'll be honest. I think did he, did, did a car sort of land on his arm or something? Was he, was he trying to change he's, a change a tire? Is uh, he's, he's in some sort of machine? And there's a line that I couldn't catch the first two times around. Again, Peyton Reed said it, but that's reiterated. Uh, which is they can't call Tony Stark because the Accords wouldn't let him intervene. So at this point in the movie, this is clearly at some point in Civil War where they a this is interesting to me because a they found Bucky, b he's on their side, c something bad has happened, d. The schism has happened between Cap and Tony. 
And I got the sense that Cap and Falcon are on the run as well. So they can't call mm. the, the Vision, who I imagine would not be on the team. I see. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was decent. It was intriguing, mildly intriguing, I guess. I, it didn't. I mean, I was hoping for Spider Man, and I was quite confused. It looked like they were in some kind of garage, yeah. and he'd got his arms stuck in a in a car. Yeah. and I didn't understand anything that was going on. I don't, so, think, meant, I don't think you meant to understand, Nick. I think you meant to ask. Yeah, questions. but you're also meant to get excited by it, and it, it didn't quite work for me. It was a lot better than the Terminator Genesis uh, Sting, which is possibly the worst thing of all time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, again, you guys were at the big multimedia. But people were people hang around now. I mean, they they left at our screening, the small screening. But people do hang around for these things. And the first thing when uh, the wasp suit is is unveiled, and Evangeline Lilly says about damn time, uh, and that's mentioned as well that that's the that's a promise of another female superhero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that's that's a great thing. Uh, so about damn time is loaded with meaning as well. That got a huge cheer. People seem to be absolutely nuts for that. And I think that that shows that, that they really connected with that character and they're really intrigued by what yeah. the Wasp could do. And then the second Sting got, a again, a huge reaction. First of all, when you hear the words Cap and then when Chris Evans appeared, that people went nuts for that. Um, but I think people were genuinely excited by that, Nick. I think people are genuinely intrigued to see what the hell has happened in Civil War. Uh, to uh, before that scene, to, bring that, to, to, to make the events of that scene come about. Okay. But I was nonplussed. Okay. Two non-plus. You were hoping to be plussed. Yes, but Two I was... Two non-plusses inter- make a positive. So you're both plussed. I was more, much more excited by Thomas the Tank Engine. I'm going to drop one final fact for this podcast. Okay, go on. Oh, man, you're Do a it. fact machine. Go on, fact me up. It's a fact up. in four parts, because I'm going to name the four carriages <laughs> you see behind Thomas the Tank Engine. Wait. Wait. Jeff. Jeff is not one of them. Oh, well, Annie and Clarabelle, everyone knows that. Annie and Clarabelle. No, I didn't know that. What? I have no Thomas Honestly, the Tank Engine knowledge. I, I know that there's a tank engine and he's called Thomas and he hangs around with a fat guy. And, and he lives, on the, he lives the, on the island of Sodor. Don't know that. You also see Emily, the brake coach, and Emily, the composite coach. That's my final fact. I'm going out in style. That's that's a huge fact. I mean, I don't know if I can deal with facts that huge. I'm not even sure if we should... We should probably just end the podcast now, to be honest. I think we talked about everything, haven't we? Yeah. When you have a fat bomb that big. I've got one more last last question. Okay, go on. Okay. There's a giant fucking ant running around. (laughs) There's a It's the size of a fucking dog. Okay. uh, And it's running around. What? The fuck? Okay, that's, awesome. that's three f bombs, Dan. You know, people are. You know, people might be playing this to their kids. And they're an hour band. into the podcast, and then Dan. Yeah, Dan's gone red band. I mean, what's <laughs> what's up with that? Red ant band. Oh, Dan, you're an absolute imbecile. <laughs> he truly is. Um, like, I'm sorry, but I can't. You can't just. Oh, look, it's the new family pet. I mean, I know it's no, a funny you can. film. You I know can. it's a funny film, but that's just wrong. It's not. That random. thing's gonna. Kill that girl. It's not going to kill that it's girl. Mandibles are going to be snipping her legs off it's at the not, knees. It's, it's going to be destroying her. It's it's a monster. It should be killed. Dan, you have issues which cannot be resolved in this pod booth, <laughs> but should be attended to. Shall we resolve some more issues just very briefly then, uh, as a better way to finish the podcast? Uh, let's look to the future because the movie ends with the line Ant Man will return, and we know that Paul Rudd will be in Captain America Civil War, and we know that he'll probably team up with Falcon and Cap to free Bucky from the giant vice that he's in whatever whatever the hell's happened there you know this movie I don't know how it's going to do at the box office we've recorded it beforehand but they're projecting a 60 million dollar opening weekend or you know I guess it's going to make enough for a sequel but it's probably going to make Captain, first Captain America first Thor money worldwide 
Um, so then Marvel, I guess, always hope that the second movie people will be familiar with the characters concept. But you know, it's not it's not going to be Avengers or Guardians of the Galaxy. I, I don't underestimate how much people like shrinking. Well, I don't like shrinking. I, is I prefer I prefer enlarging personally. No, no, but, no, 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 no. The uh, you know the idea of shrinking is it's just like you don't need to have the knowledge of the character or any of this business yeah. to just be into the idea of a superhero who shrinks really small. Kids love that. And the marketing for this has been pretty Very clever, focused on that. So yeah. I actually think it's going to do better. Okay. I, I think it should be, you could push Guardians, we the Guardians numbers. Yeah. We haven't mentioned the effects okay. at all, by the way, and we should say that the, the macro photography, which is how they did the, um, the shrinking stuff, they actually... Uh, filmed every set that they were going to have a shrinking scene on with with these amazing cameras. I watched them do a bathtub, and that's all real stuff. That's not that's not VFX. That's the obviously, you know, they use effects to get him in there. But it, he's running around. Those are real cracks and stuff. They didn't mm. use any oversized props. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it looked really good. I thought the bath scene in particular. Yes. Do you think that? Uh, do you think we're only going to see Ant Man now in other people's movies or do you think that Marvel will, will commit now to an Ant-Man 2 which they haven't announced yet I mean they've got their slate up to 2019 but as Kevin Feige has said and as they've already proven with Spider-Man they can move things around well I have an inside source okay two words yes Jurassic Ant yes Doctor Wu shrinks dinosaurs and Paul Rudd has to fight them well how have they, how have they not made this movie already what's going on that sounds Awesome. <laughs> You're on board. You don't like big ants, but you like small dinosaurs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love dinosaurs. I would. I would love to have a pet tri- Tyrannosaurus Rex that is the size of a cat. <laughs> but I would not like to have a pet ant that is the size of a dog. <laughs> if nothing else, we've we've we figured that out, and that's a wonderful thing. On that hatred-filled bombshell, that's it for our Ant Man spoiler special. Uh, our next spoiler special is going to be probably. Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, with writer-director Christopher McQuarrie spilling all the beans. If that happens, it's going to be out early August, just after the film comes out. And of course, do listen, if you don't already, to the regular Empire podcast every Friday. We, uh, we, would, we would appreciate that, of course, until the regular podcast or the spoiler one. It's goodbye from Dan. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to mourn Anthony, who was taken from us too soon. Rest in peace, little guy. Rest in peace.